This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, And welcome once again to Evidence for Faith. This is the radio show where we help you to defend the truth of Christianity. Hello, my name is Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Kirk, thanks once again for helping to co-host today. We have a great show lined up. We've got more information about some of the items that were discovered in 2010 that helped to defend the Christian worldview. And we'll be getting into more on the uh, debate that we had with a couple of atheists last month. I remember it well. So, uh, so I was actually sitting here in the studio during that, even though I didn't contribute to it. I was listening. Yes. And we thank you for that, for being here for moral support. <laughs> well, you know, we, might, we might be uh, actually involving you in the next debate. We're negotiating with them right now for a, another debate. This one will be on their podcast. Okay. And they do a two-hour, or they can go up to two hours, so it'll be a little longer. So since Dr. Mike is taking a sabbatical, we might use you. We're just waiting for them to respond to that, whether they want to wait for Mike to return or if they want to— just do you and me, or just do me by myself, I guess, which, nah, that wouldn't be fair. Two to, two against one? No, that's, well, you know, that's that's terrible odds, because, you know, that they gives can you too much of an advantage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one, what, half my brain tied behind my head, right? <laughs> All right, let's do the quote of the day. I've got two quotes today. This one's provided by thinkchristianly.org. It's a quote from Mark Twain. Here's what they say. Mark Twain once quipped, Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Hmm. And I guess a lot of atheists think that that's the way things are. That sounds about equal to stupidity, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's pretty much the equation that atheists want to make. And I think, I guess Mark Twain was an atheist himself. Mm -hmm. But they go on and say, this isn't Christianity. The fact that some Christians may have blind faith is not the same as Christianity itself championing blind faith and irrationality. Historic Christianity has always emphasized that faith and reason go together. In everyday terms, faith is simply trusting in what you have good reason to believe is true. Faith in the Christian life is trust that God is who he claims to be and will do all that he has promised to do. This is reasonable because God has shown himself to be reliable and trustworthy. So faith is not belief in spite of the evidence, but belief in light of the evidence. Hmm. So that's from thinkchristianly.org, a great blog. And then this quote, which is related from Apologetics 315, this is from Oxford theologian Austin Farrer. He says... Though argument does not create conviction, the lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend 
is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. Hmm. What'd you think? Very interesting. It's kind of the purpose of this show. Yeah, you could do a whole hour on that. Well, we do a whole show on it every week. <laughs> so, yeah, that's yeah, true. <laughs> this is this is what we're trying to show, that rational argument helps people to believe. That's what we're here for, to supply rational argument. Exactly. All right, news items. We've got a couple news items. This one came across from MSNBC, the headline, Young People Crave Self-Esteem More Than Sex. Wow. That got everybody's attention. There is something they crave more than that, huh? <laughs> this is from Reuters, and it says young people crave boosts to their self-esteem more than sex and money, according to a new study. Researchers from Ohio State University and Brookhaven National Laboratory in Upton, New York, found that college students rated receiving compliments or doing well on a test above such pleasurable activities such as sex, receiving a paycheck, seeing a friend, or eating their favorite food. Hmm. Brad Bushman, a professor of communication and psychology at Ohio State University, said the findings should raise red flags about the role of self-esteem in society. Hmm. How about that? Uh, you can be addicted to self-esteem then, right? Just like you can be addicted to drugs or alcohol or many other things. Exactly right. Exactly right. In fact, they actually mentioned that this is one of the measurements that they use to measure addictiveness, is the way they did this study as to what you like and what you need. Right. Is, That's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. They, so they actually mentioned that in this. It's uh, uh, In fact, I'll, I'll find that quote here. Uh, it says, oh, the, the liking wanting distinction has occupied an important place in addiction research. So this is part of these findings are about <laughs> addiction. So Bushman added that there is a fine line between self-esteem and narcissism. Over-the-top self-esteem becomes narcissistic. Mm. So one of the things that we think is important on this show is the truth of the Christian worldview and how it benefits people. Mm-hmm. And it solves this dilemma of how do we get self-esteem, right? Mm -hmm. Self-esteem, does it really come from people patting you on the back and, and saying, good job, good job? You know, do, does every little leaguer have to get a participation ribbon? Otherwise, he'll feel bad? Mm. What do you think? I would say no. I, I would think that if you're really interested in playing the game and you practice a lot and you get good at it then you would have a personally I would have a feeling of achievement that wouldn't depend a whole lot on whether anybody patted me on the back or not well at least certainly self-esteem would come from doing well right right, right. right. so in other words I generate my own self-esteem there rather than trying to get it from somebody else but I don't know if that's normal or not but what about in the Christian worldview what about the person who doesn't play baseball well do they, should they then have poor self-esteem in the Christian worldview? Not according to the Bible. Why not? The Bible tells us that we should have self-esteem not because we are so great in ourselves, but because God values us. Wow. That gives us value. So even if you're in a wheelchair, you still have value? Certainly. Yeah. 
That's the truth. That's the truth. It's so, what you are on the inside that really counts, not whether you, how well your body on the outside functions. And having a creator God that loves you. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. So Christianity provides many, many benefits to society, and I think a lot of teenagers, it sounds like, or college students could use a little bit of Christian self-esteem. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, tomorrow is... Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's Monday, January 17th, and as a remembrance of that, I thought that we should listen to a sound clip of the I Have a Dream speech, and I want to point out that Martin Luther King was a Christian and used Christian principles. He used the Christian worldview to bring about good in this world. Mm -hmm. So let's hear from Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, that's from Martin Luther King. There's something about the movement, the civil rights actions that he did that is pretty much forgotten these days. King founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Okay, now one of his most trusted aides tried to get him to drop the use of the word Christian from the organization. Hmm. He thought it would appeal more to the masses if they left out the term Christian, mm-hmm. but he insisted that it stay in. He also insisted that civil rights participants be guided by Christian principles, and volunteers in the Birmingham campaign were required to sign a commitment card that said in part, and I'll just read three of the items that they had to sign that they agreed to do. Number one, meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. Number three, walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. And number four, pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. Hmm. So there's wonderful blessings to a society that come from following the Christian worldview, including freedom and racial tolerance. Scripturally, the Bible says that we all came from one blood, Mm -hmm. so there There are no races in Christianity. There's only the human race. Exactly right. And we're all loved by by God, and we should treat each other with kindness. So I hope everybody has a wonderful uh, Martin Luther King Day tomorrow. Okay. That's very inspiring. 
Well, here's another news item. Can I get like the sound of a little typewriter or something typing? Oh, in the did you want something back? You have to arrange this stuff ahead of time. Okay. It's no okay. good telling us For, right now. Forget the typewriter. Unless, oh, wait a minute. Josh, go ahead on the keyboard. This is Josh on the keyboards. No, he's not going <laughs> to be. He's shaking that. his head. How about me? Okay. Anyway. Oh, I'm actually writing something. I should not do this that. This is an important news item here that you should all pay very strict attention to. I'm going to read this verbatim here. Quote, the Arctic Ocean is warming up. Icebergs are growing scarcer, and in some places, the seals are finding the water too hot. According to a report to the Commerce Department yesterday from Consuloft at Bergen, Norway, Reports from fishermen, seal hunters, and explorers all point to a radical change in climate conditions and hitherto unheard of temperatures in the Arctic zone. Exploration expeditions report that scarcely any ice has been met as far north as 81 degrees 29 minutes. Soundings to a depth of 3,100 meters showed the Gulf Stream still very warm. Great masses of ice have been replaced by mounds of earth and stones, the report continued, while at many points well-known glaciers have entirely disappeared. Very few seals and no whitefish are found in the eastern Arctic, while vast shoals of herring and smelts, which have never before ventured so far north, are being encountered in the old seal fishing grounds. Within a few years, it is predicted that due to the ice melt, the sea will rise and make most coastal cities uninhabitable. Wow. So this, now, sounds... this, this is reported by the Associated Press uh -huh. in the Washington Post newspaper. Wow. This is scary. They're back to the scare tactics again, I guess. Uh, yeah, but the one thing that I didn't mention was that I just got this report from the November 2nd, 1922 issue of the Post. <laughs> <laughs> 88 years ago. 1922. Very good. Very good. So it's been and a long time. the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> and they said that it would happen in a few years. Yes. Wow. The East Coast would be uninhabitable. So are you telling me that people have been abusing science for decades? Well, this just goes to show you that global warming has been around a lot longer than we thought. <laughs> and it actually, and it had a global cooling stage in there in between. Oh, yeah. Right. That was I remember when I was a kid back in the 60s, even in the 60s, they uh -huh. were talking about another ice age might have been on the, on the way. So I guess from 1922 to the 60s, they, they changed their mind a little bit, and now they've gone back the other way. <laughs> I guess so. What does that tell you, folks? I'm telling you. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. We should mention that you can also listen to previous podcasts on evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And we are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, heard exclusively on WIBG Ocean City. All right, one final news item, I think was worth mentioning just because we talk about Christian worldview and you know how people ought to live. So here's something that's health-related. I get a lot of medical studies that come across my desk, and this one is from theheart.org. Too much TV ups risk of death, cardiovascular events. This is from London, UK. 
People who spend two hours or more a day in front of a screen during their leisure time, primarily watching television, have more than double the risk of cardiovascular events, which people that means strokes, heart attacks, things like that, things to do with the blood supply system. Mm-hmm. Over four years, compared with those who spend less than two hours a day in front of a screen, even after, a, now this is the important part, even after the adjustment of the findings for physical activity. So if they said, okay, well, people who are sedentary have more heart attacks than those who are active, that we've already known. This is different. For the same level of activity, if you spend more time in front of a screen, which because it's mostly was people watching television, but they wanted to include people using computers also mm-hmm. for their leisure activity that it increases the risk of heart disease or heart events. Then uh, it goes on to say Dr. Emmanuel Stamatakis, University College London, said that the results also showed a 50% risk increase of all-cause mortality. So that means, uh, well, let me finish what they were saying. For those who sit in front of a screen for four hours or more a day, compared with those spending less than two hours on this activity. So if you spend more than two hours, you have an increased risk of having a, a CV disease uh, event. Mm-hmm. But if you spend four hours or more, you have a 50% increase in your risk of death, all-cause mortality. So wow. death for any reason. Wow. Yeah. So it, this really opens up a lot of new ideas of and new areas for research because they're going to have to try to figure out what the cause is since it doesn't seem to have to do with the sedentary part of it. It seems to be something else. Hmm. So he says, a direct message from our research, which is that there should be a cutoff of two hours daily screen time as a maximum during leisure hours. And this study, just for those who are interested, was of 4,512 respondents aged 35 and older from the Scottish Health Survey from, 19, uh, from 2003 to 2007. Prior research has shown that the number one activity outside of work that people engage in is watching television. So, so something interesting to keep in mind, uh, maybe spend some time doing something other than watching television, Hmm. which probably isn't too good for you anyways, just because of all the junk that's there. (laughs) All right, Mr. (laughs) We have a letter from our friend, Yussi, from Finland. He's an atheist friend of ours who's had sent us emails, and we've responded to them in past shows and by email. This one's a little bit long, but I thought it was so well-written, and he's a nice guy, so I think we'll give him the airtime to read his letter and uh, then respond to it. He says, and I'll kind of, his English is a little bit poor, so I'll try to correct some of the English as we go along. You're going to translate. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, (laughs) Not that my English is great, uh, as I'm constantly reminded, but... uh, Here we go. Continuing my monologue, I have pretty badly infected wound in my toe, and all I can do right now is thinking, reading, etc. I think you have misunderstood evolution badly. Survival of the fittest is not about strongest individual killing everyone else it can. It's about survival of genes by any means. 
there are a lot of ways, not necessarily so much about individuals. Example, it is well known that some herd animals like musk ox do defensive formation around their young, in other words, they cooperate. Do you think that is because God taught them that it is the right thing to protect their young, or because they have evolved to protect their young because they who did that had living young, and they who didn't do that didn't manage to continue their bloodline? Okay, well, sorry I wasn't able to correct the English terribly good on that one, but (laughs) I just read it as it was. Uh, Continuing on, second example, bees. Sometimes some bees die when they are protecting their hive. Think about it. Few dead bees can mean 100 saved bees. If that doesn't make bees a species more fitness, then what? How do you see this? If God has to teach muskox that protecting their young is the right thing to do, isn't it then wrong for us or wolves to kill them for food? And if God told us it is right to eat the muskox, then why does God teach the muskox to protect their young from us? Uh, in other words, why the muskox doesn't just walk to our grill when we need food <laughs> and jump on it? Right? <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Let's see why I like you. See, he doesn't. Gee, is there some way we can mess around with the genes of, of <laughs> animals and get them to do uh, that? <laughs> Possibly, if jump right on the grill, if the genetic information is there, (laughs) we just keep them tied up in the backyard until Uh, we're ready to use them, and then they just jump right on the stove or in the pan or whatever. No, listen. Even better is if they would walk around the house asking if we're hungry. Okay. (laughs) Hey, anybody hungry here? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Where was I? Uh, Why? Okay. um, Why God made this so complicated for us? Human is pretty weak, alone against predators. Also, hunting alone is very difficult without modern weapons. We did not have choice. We had to work together. We couldn't do that without some kind of moral. You can't cooperate with individuals who doesn't care about your life or who doesn't want to share anything with you. That's why we evolved to have morals. Read about evolution. Read, and we know about it today. Don't read about what it was in time of Darwin. Science always changing in light of new evidence. It is self-correcting in this way. And that, again, is from UC from Finland. So we thank you, UC, again, for writing in to us. You always have good comments, and you're very pleasant in your communication. And I agree with you 100%. Science is always changing in light of the new evidence. That is why we promote the intelligent design movement among scientists so well, because They are changing the way we look at the evidence and showing that macroevolution doesn't happen. Mm. Microevolution is what happens. So science is self-correcting. The problem is that it gets in people's way, and so they they no longer want to accept what science has to say, and they fall back on their religious beliefs of such as atheism. So what do you think? Any uh, just general? I mean, we'll answer in better uh, my response. Fir- my first question, actually, that I always think of every time evolution is brought up is when we're talking about genes surviving and species surviving and uh, the will to survive and all this kind of stuff, the first question that comes to my mind is, if evolution is true, why did we ever advance beyond weeds and cockroaches? 
Oh, you mean things that survive really well? Yeah. I mean, you know, insects. I mean, these, these things are extremely adaptable to survival, more so than higher animals than we are. Yeah, it doesn't Why did it ever go beyond that point then? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would go to a less survivable state. In right. fact, he even mentions it in his letter that humans are pretty weak against predators. Sure. Yeah, uh, not a good idea. Yeah, how did, how did we ever yeah. survive as long as we did then? <laughs> well, I guess what they would say, what the evolutionists would say is, well, evolution is still random. So you still would have a population that happened in a particular time, in a particular place, not to have too many predators around. And so they kind of accidentally did survive. And so now you have this new species that's a little bit less, you know, has less claws and fangs type of mechanism, but it has to have some other way of survival. So, you know, bigger brain, whatever. So then you're not talking about survival of the fittest. You're talking about survival of the accidental. <laughs> yeah. And, you know... Uh, survival of the luckiest. <laughs> right. In fact, that's really about what survival of the fittest is. You know, it's a... Sure. Uh, the one that you know, survives the one, is the fit one and the lucky one. The one that right. doesn't isn't. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. We'll go... You know, and we actually... I think we should go on, do a show about this idea about morality and... Can morality be explained by evolution? I mean, we've talked briefly about it, but it'd be worth examining a little more in depth. So, Yeah, my other question there would be if moral uh, precepts and behavior and all uh, leads to better survival and, you know, people are more comfortable that way and whatever, and that's why we evolved moral laws and ideas, why don't we follow them better than we do? Mm-hmm. When you read the newspaper every night and look at the news every night, how come so many people are being, you know, drive-by shootings and murders and assassinations and tortures? And how come we're not doing this better then? Yeah, if we're driven by evolutionary processes and evolutionary processes were so incredibly able to create complexity that it created the human brain, an amazing feat. Right. And yet it can't do something as simple as making sure that people obey moral laws that would keep the species surviving. Yeah, if it gave us the brain to figure out moral laws, how come it hasn't given us the ability to live by it? Well, this is one of the problems with the atheistic worldview is that it is poor at explaining a lot of the features of the world, the way things are. Christianity has an incredibly strong ability to explain why things are the way they are. Why is it that we feel these morals, these ethical drives that we ought to behave in a certain way? And then why is it true that we don't do them? And why do we feel that self-sacrifice in certain situations is such a good and heroic thing? That's totally contrary to the law of survival. It makes no sense from a position of evolution where your main thing should be to make sure your genes survive. Right. So why should you ever want to give up your your health or your life or whatever for somebody else? That's contradictory. I heard recently about a talk on NPR where a evolutionary psychologist was presenting that rape is morally correct because it provides for 
a person to pass on his genetic information. Yeah, I think I heard that. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, that is really uh, shocking. So I guess we should legalize rape now. Huh? Yeah, apparently. That's the idea. So you can see how evolution is, it is really not yes. right. It's really not a good explanation for no. moral views no. and ethics. Why we have this desire to protect women from rape. And we should still be like the cartoon cavemen who are always going around and batting women on the head with their clubs and dragging them off. Yeah, acting like animals. Yeah. Right. Why should we be polite and right. sophisticated about it? Right. All right. Well, let's get into some of the studies that came out in 2010. We talked about most of them last week. There's a few left, so I thought these were worth hanging on to for this week because... They're pretty interesting. One is a study that showed how unique human DNA is. There's this common argument, we've talked about this in the past, that's used to support evolution that says that humans and chimpanzees share a common ape-like ancestor, and the evidence is that the two species share so much of the same genes. Mm -hmm. This is what that's saying. You've heard this said that there's 95% correspondence. Right. Well, the counter argument has been to show that these studies were actually cherry picking. They would pick specific gene complexes, specific proteins mm -hmm. that showed a lot of similarity and left out a lot of DNA that showed differences. So in 2010, the first direct sequence-for-sequence sequence comparison of any of the corresponding chimp and human chromosomes was published. Mm -hmm. The new work was made possible by powerful new techniques that are able to quickly compare reams of data, unlike prior spot-checking estimates of DNA sequence similarities. And the results showed that the human Y chromosome, which people believe that the Y chromosome is the same as the chimpanzee because it appears that they were part of a combination where two chromosomes combine together because they have telomeres that are supposed to be on the ends of chromosomes in the middle. So, it, so they argued that, see, they have the same condition that is the same in humans, so that must have happened before they when they were together as a species before they split right. off. So so that was the argument. But if you actually look at the Y chromosomes and compare them sequence by sequence, they're totally different from the chimps. They contain large sections of coded information that are unique to man and very large portions that have a unique layout and arrangement. So in other words, humans mm. and chimps look to be in no way related. There's and so, they've just recently figured this out. This was in 2010, yes. Wow. So that's that's exciting news. It, it really puts the kibosh on the idea that they had a common ancestor. Hmm. Now this final one studies, actually several studies that fit into the same category, has to do with support for the view of a young Earth. Now we don't take a position on this show about the age of the Earth for one thing, it's in an incredibly complex argument. And secondly, it's based on a lot of assumptions. So 
on the old Earth assumption, you have assumptions about the dating of nuclear decay, that that has always stayed right. constant and that it's never changed in the past. On the young Earth side, you've got... The degradation of radioactive isotopes and that type of thing. Yeah, on the old Earth. Yeah, that's in that view, that has to have stayed stable. Well, it's stable now, so maybe it has stayed stable. Right. That's a possibility. Or but that's an assumption, because we don't correct. know that. It's an assumption. Well, some of the young Earth people have brought out evidence that shows, that seems to show that it has changed in the past. So that's their side of it. Right. Um, but then, you know, young Earthers also make assumptions, for instance, you know, that the word day has to only mean 24-hour period, you know, but there are good arguments I've heard that it doesn't have to. So this kind of, and, and since you can be a Christian, regardless of whether you believe in an old earth or a young earth, we simply avoid this topic. Right. But sometimes some bits of information come out that are very intriguing. So we're doing this just for those who are young earthers in the audience that would like to know that there's a lot of evidence that came out last year to support your view. So these are studies that showed more soft tissue from fossils that are supposed to be millions of years old. They've been finding a lot of those lately. Yes, they have. The first one was a few years back, and I have photographs that I carry on my phone of the massive blood clot that was found in a Tyrannosaurus rex bone. Wow, really? Yeah, it's very impressive. It's He died of a heart attack? <laughs> no, this is blood this is marrow inside the bone. The the bone was cracked open so yeah. that it could be transported more easily cuz it's a huge bone. Right. And blood fell out. A big blood clot with with blood vessels. Wow. And blood cells fell out and it was collected and brought back to the laboratory to study and it is red blood cells. It is blood clot. It is veins there were capillaries that's easy for you to say so okay this is supposed to have been from bones that were 65 million years old right well how could blood or or blood vessels or even some of them they've been finding soft tissue in other words flesh yeah well blood vessels is flesh that are not fossilized how that's could correct. stuff like that have stayed that way for millions of years without either disintegrating or fossilizing or something. Right. And, and that's, that's a big question to answer. That's right, because everything we know about soft tissue and, you know, protein structures as it falls apart. Sure. When, you know, open to the environment. Even if you were to, say, freeze it, uh, you still would have, it would still decay over that long of a period of a time right. just by Brownian motion, just by the molecules themselves falling apart. Right. And every study that they've done of how long it takes for things to fall apart, protein structures to fall apart, it doesn't take long. In fact, there was a very famous study of DNA. How long would DNA in ideal conditions take before it would fall apart? And that must have uh they must have started looking into that around the time that Jurassic Park came out. Yeah, actually they did. And the finding was that there is no string of DNA, no length of string, measurable length of string of DNA that could survive past 10,000 years. Wow. Now, the scientist who did the study 
said that if his supporters, his funders, had known that that was going to be the answer to his research, he would never have been funded because it's such an incredible denial of what they think is happening. They think that right. they're able to extract DNA from creatures that are millions of years old, and it's simply not true. Cystocene, guanine, and the other nucleotides have a half-life, just like chemical compounds do. Right, They or have radioactive isotopes. That's right. They have a half-life. They will fall apart. They are such complex and unstable molecules that just sitting in perfect conditions, they will fall apart on their own right. due to Brownian motion and other types of... And due to entropy. Entropy, which we're going to talk about today. I hope we are because we're, well, we're progressing along. But let's let's finish up this news item. So let's see, extinct varieties. Uh, here's, here's one thing that was discovered in 2010. An extinct variety of penguin was found fossilized in South America. This fossil still existed, exhibited feather colors. Original penguin feather melanosomes should no longer exist after 36 million years. So this is the pigmentation, the protein that gives the feather color. The melanoma, as they taught us in high school, that gives your skin color. Exactly. And that... It makes those irritating little brown spots. (laughs) That's right. And it had not decayed away. Hmm. An Archaeopteryx bird was found with original bone fragments and feathers. So the, uh, again, you know, bone fragments... So this isn't just like a mold in a rock. This is actually pieces of the actual animal... Correct. ...were still in there. Were still in there that had not turned... Had not corroded or whatever. Had not fossilized. Right. You uh, You know, there's this process where the molecules actually exchange places... So it becomes solid rock, or it right. becomes an impression in the in the rock, and there's nothing left of it like but the impression, like a mold. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another find was original carbon molecules from the dark pigment structures in a fossilized Cynosauropteryx dinosaur. Let's see another one. Some of the best preserved fossils are those of insects entombed in amber. Amber forms very quickly from resins made by certain trees and is produced more copiously when those trees are damaged, as would occur in a catastrophe. Two major amber deposits were discovered in 2010, one in Australia and one in India. In both cases, the insects, animals, and plant parts trapped within showed very little sign of decay. So again, just because it's covered in amber doesn't mean it won't decay. Right. Just because there is no bacteria, obviously, you know, when you leave a dead bug outside, the very first thing that happens is bacteria are going to destroy it. Sure. Secondly, if it's open to oxygen, it will oxidize. Right. So, so just— Not to mention that other predators and parasites will correct. take care of it. If you close it off and get rid of bacteria, get rid of oxygen, it will still decay. Even in ideal conditions. In ideal conditions. So it still can't last more than, you know, thousands of years. No, I would think that's some that's something that evolutionary scientists, they would not be happy to hear this stuff. Yeah, I don't... Because this is really evidence that really directly contradicts a lot of what they say. Right, and you notice it's not mentioned in uh, books like Dawkins' books. 
And it's not on the front page of the newspaper either. Yep. Here's another one. A shrimp from Oklahoma found in a rock layer and assigned an evolutionary age of over 300 million years. Hmm. That's an old shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it still had muscle tissue in its tail. Wow. Muscle tissue. Wow. The limestone in which it was buried was most likely would have been formed during the year-long flood of Noah. That's according to uh, Institute for Creation Research, and thus only about 4,400 years old. Then the, then the last statement here from them is the fossil with perhaps the best preserved original tissues was that of a mosasaur, an extinct marine reptile found decades ago in Kansas, but only described this year. It had mummified skin, original retinal material from its eye cavity. Wow. Yeah, so part of the eye was found, and decayed hemoglobin residue that still was colored red. So this was followed by another mosasaur discovered in South Dakota with skin, cartilage connected to its bones, and original organic stomach contents. Well, that reminds me of, didn't they find either in this last year or the year before, they there was a, a big thing about they found a mummified uh, duck-billed dinosaur? That does sound familiar. Where yeah. its skin and everything was, was still there, and they were like amazed, like, this thing's supposed to be millions of years old. How could it be mummified? And it, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, it was either the entire dinosaur or most of it was still there, and it was, right. you know, mummified. It wasn't fossilized. It was a mummy. So, yeah, they have a lot of splaining to do uh-huh. to how this stuff can last for that long. That's right. So very interesting. Very, very interesting. All right. Let's see. How are we doing for time? We're pretty good. we still got a good uh, more than 10 minutes. So let's go over... Some of the arguments that got bypassed during our debate last month, we were pressed for time trying to push on to the topic that we had originally discussed or agreed to discuss, which was the evidence for God. So we had to bypass a lot of discussion on other things. And one of the items, this was our discussion back on 12.12, and you can look it up on podcasts if you'd like to hear it. It was a good dialogue with uh, two atheists. That was a year ago. Oh, yeah, you're right. It was last year. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That was a long time ago. Well, only that se- was all, all the way back in 2010. It seems like only a month ago. <laughs> and one of the things what was kind of thrown out as a side issue was this argument for the second law of thermodynamics. And I answered it. I thought pretty well, but I thought that it was worth going over again because it's an argument that I haven't used in probably 20 years because it's too easy for someone just to say, well, that doesn't count because the environment that we live in is an open system, Mm -hmm. and that kind of puts the kibosh on everything, and it takes extra effort to go beyond that and say, hey, now wait a minute. Just because it's an open system doesn't mean that you can violate the second law of thermodynamics. Right. So so let's get into that. Okay. Well, I have some notes here that I made on that. I deal with this a little bit in my book mm-hmm. also, but I got uh, 
some of this information off the uh, Institute for Creation Research website. Uh, basically, as I remember, they, as you say, you brought up the idea of the second law of thermodynamics as being contradictory to what evolution says has happened. Correct. And their response was, uh, well, no, that's, that's not true. That's been disproven. That the, thir- the second law of thermodynamics, there's no problem between that and evolution. And to give you an idea for people who may be listening to our show for the first time or haven't really dealt with this subject very much, let me give you a brief uh, description of what we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, entropy, which is another word for the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says that the entire universe is winding down, that order is becoming disorder. Um, The heat and the light in the universe is being dissipated slowly, and that eventually there will come a point when all the heat has been dissipated and all the light is dissipated and whatever, and the universe will wind down. You're saying everything is decaying. Yes. And this is the kind of thing that we see happening all the time. This is just common knowledge to the simplest sure. person that if you leave a piece of beefsteak out on the counter for— It's going to rot. <laughs> exactly. It's going to become less organized. If you leave your car sitting out in the weather, it's going to rust. And the technical term for that— Is entropy. Entropy, right. So if and we say— And, of course, we grow old, which is also another example of that. That's right. So anyway, that's what entropy and the second law of thermodynamics is all about. Now, what the evolutionists are saying is they're saying, okay, on the surface it appears that the second law of thermodynamics contradicts the idea of evolution because evolution says that everything is getting more complex and more orderly. Correct. So how do you reconcile these two ideas? That's right. Their answer is that the Earth is an open system and therefore... In this particular case, the second law of thermodynamics doesn't apply. Well, Now, what well, they mean on, by an on. open system is... Well, let's be very careful. We have to word this very carefully. Okay. You said that they say that the second law of thermodynamics doesn't apply. No, In they, this particular instance. No, they do not say that. They, oh, they don't. No, they, they say that the second law of thermodynamics applies all the time. It is a law. Right. A law means it's never broken. Right. Okay, so they well, I don't agree s- with that. That's what most scientists say. That's right. So they don't say that it doesn't apply. So how do they word it? They say that the second law of thermodynamics is never broken. Why does it appear that it's being broken? Because this is not a closed system. So it's an actually an open system. Therefore, the law is not broken. So that's okay. Because the law applies to closed systems. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So in it's, other words, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, a small uh, po- point, but we have to be very clear and very careful. Otherwise, okay. they're going to they're gonna hit us with that and say, oh, you did. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. So. Okay, now that we have that established. Yes. An open system. Let's define an open system mm-hmm. as opposed to a closed system. Right. How would you define the difference between the two? Oh, it just means that there is something in the surrounding, something in the environment of the system that you're looking at that's imparting energy to that system. So, for instance, if you... From outside. Correct. Well, from its environment, it, you know, what do you mean by outside? Uh, let's say you have well, they, a refrigerator, okay? So a refrigerator creates 
order right. because the room that it's in is warm, and yet it's able to keep things cool. And that difference is a structure. It's an order. Right. So how does it do it? How, how is it possible to do that? That's because it's pulling power out of, this, out of the environment. It's getting energy supplied to it. Right. And it has a mechanism that can convert that energy and do what we want it to do. You know, Which based is keep on our, our thermostat. food from decaying quite as exactly fast. right. So okay, that's a good. So it would appear it. you would say, hey, you know, how can it be warm in this room? I thought that, for instance, entropy would say that all kinds of temperatures in a room will level out if you drop an ice cube into a cup of hot coffee. That ice cube's not going to just sit there. And that ice right. cube's not going to grow bigger and become even bigger. It's going to diffuse into that cup of coffee until everything is the same temperature. Same the ice the, cube is going to dissipate and the coffee is going to get cooler. Correct. And the, so the same thing, you know, open, you know, you you open the refrigerator door and you say, hey, it's cooler in here. That's not supposing to happen. Everything's right. supposed to be the same temperature in this room. How is it happening? And then you say, ah, okay, it's not really a closed system. It's an open system. There's power coming in from the outside. Okay. So. So now what evolutionists do is they take that principle and they say, okay, the Earth is not a closed system because we have things like the sun right. imparting heat, light, and energy into the Earth system right. that can alter things. Right. Now, I've never quite understood how they say it alters it, but anyway, they say it, it's, it has the potential of altering things. Right. Okay. Now, the response... Well, it'd be like, you know... Uh, we have a piece of meat laying on the counter, and I've got an electrical cord. So I plug the electrical cord into the piece of meat, and now it's an open system. That piece of meat's not going to decay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just answered the question. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. So, it, yes. It's that's, that's no big deal. Uh, you know, it's uh, the fact that it's open doesn't tell us anything. Who cares that it's an open system? Okay. You still have to explain how come there's it's not entropy's not increasing. Okay, let's get a little more technical about this. Here's a quote from a man named Roger Lewin in Science Magazine. Mm. Now, this is an evolutionist. He says, one problem biologists have faced is the apparent contradiction by evolution of the second law of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. Systems should decay through time, giving less, not more order. Correct. One legitimate response to this challenge is that life on Earth is an open system with respect to energy, and therefore the process of evolution sidesteps the law's demands for increasing disorder with time. Uh-huh. Okay? Yeah, that's that's the typical what the typical atheist that would is, say. Yes, that is the typical uh, evolutionist response mm -hmm. to what we say. All right, now let me read you another quote. This one is from Harvard scientist John Ross, who says, There are no known violations of the second law of thermodynamics. Ordinarily, the second law is stated for isolated systems, but the second law applies equally well to open systems. It is important to make sure that this error does not perpetuate itself. Now, he goes on in great detail here. I don't have time to read all of this, but if I could boil down the rest of what he says here, is he's saying that all of the scientific evidence we have at this point shows that the energy from the sun, meaning heat, light, radiation, whatever, does not 
sidestep entropy, it actually, if anything, appears to increase it. Right. That's exactly true. And that's, okay. the, that's the argument that I made during the debate. Right. Now, an example of this that comes to the top of my head is if you walk outside and you go down the beach and, you know, with a bathing suit on and you stand there for six hours in the sun, what's going to happen? Are you going to become stronger, better? Right. Are you going to evolve a big brain? <laughs> right. You know, are you going to get be a better human being than you were when you got there? No, you're going to end up with a sunburn, mm. which is, um, how should we put it? It's more disorder. Right. Yes, it's more disorder. Right. So this this is what he's basically saying here is that number one, the the idea that this energy coming in somehow contra- contradicts the second law of thermodynamics as far as evolution is concerned and allows it to happen not only. Is there no evidence to show that, but all the evidence we have shows that it has the opposite effect. It increases entropy right. in every way that we can see. Right. Now, here's one other viewpoint of another scientist who, uh, his name is, if I can pronounce this correctly, he's French, Emil Borel. He was a great French scientist and mathematician. He proved mathematically quite a few years ago that no finite physical system can be considered completely closed anyway. Therefore, the statement that the Earth is an open system is an empty statement since all systems are actually, in the end, open systems. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I guess because you could say, well, you could say, okay, well, the solar system is a closed system. But then they would say, oh, no, it's not closed because you're getting starlight. So right. having light come from stars, so somehow uh, you can always go a step be, further back and say, okay, something's coming in here from somewhere else, so therefore this is an open system, except for the universe itself. So he neglects to say that the the universe the universe itself is a closed system by definition. I suppose so, but given the size of the universe, that's not really saying a whole lot either. I don't think. Um, well, it's just saying that the universe could not possibly grow in complexity because it's a closed system. There's nothing. That's true. There's nothing coming from the outside to make it right. better. So the universe must decay. All right. Well, we hope that has been helpful to you. This has been the Evidence for Faith show. Please join us again next week, Sunday at 4 p.m. if you're in the South Jersey listening audience on WIBG. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.